Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 7, The Guinea Pig Club, Part 2. Last time, we covered the fact that the RAF would not allow the Lancer-modified fuel tanks to be installed in Spitfires and Hurricanes, due to the extra weight and reduced capacity. It was simply a matter of priorities, and strategy ranked higher than safety. But it wasn't a decision made callously. The idea was to incorporate alternative flying tactics until the RAE could create something acceptable to those in charge and to the pilots who risked everything each time they went up. The men at RAE might have thought to themselves, the pilots of the RAF were putting a little too much faith in their ability, but they were certainly going to try to not let them down. Testing fuel tanks and material for tanks continued, and by the end of 1939, the RAE was testing a substance called Linitex, and honestly, feeling pretty good about the results. The main part of this trial was when a Linitex seal tank was placed in a Blenheim and sent to France in early 1940. In the spring, the Blenheim was brought back and the tank was evaluated. All concerned were impressed by the results. The main part of this trial was when a Linitex seal tank was placed in a Blenheim and sent to France in early 1940. In the spring, the Blenheim was brought back and the tank was evaluated. All concerned were impressed by the results. A part of the report read, Linitex is the trade name for a special form of rubber which is manufactured in British Malaya. The rubber is unusually tough and resilient and has great resistance to abrasion and penetration. And here's the important part. It swells when exposed to the action of petrol or oil but does not dissolve. And there it was, a self-sealing tank. In May of 1940, permission was given to begin installing this new fuel tank sealer into production line fighter aircraft. But the process was slow and spotty. First, enough rubber had to be brought together to make enough Linitex to make it worth altering the fighter's production line. But there was a war on. Shipments were threatened along its entire route on its way to Britain. Then the Linotex manufacturer, Wilkinson Rubber, had to train Hawker and Supermarine contractors about the fitting and installation process. And even then, the overall process took much longer than anyone expected in installing this new type of fuel tank in fighter aircraft. The main delay came from the steps taken before the tank was placed inside the aircraft. First, four layers of rubber and cotton duck had to be connected to a tank. Then the rubber was treated with chemicals, which caused it to shrink and thus fit snugly around the tank. Installing the tank was rather straightforward, but it was this first step that called for a specific knowledge and practice. That is, because there was so much cutting, fitting, and sewing involved. In fact, Wilkinson Rubber strongly suggested that fabric workers were the only personnel qualified enough for this delicate job. Even then, during the process, all had to take care that no dirt, grease, oil, or really anything came into contact during the fitting process, as the integrity would have been ruined. But nothing is perfect, especially in war. Men and plants were moved around for either safety reasons or to make up for shortages in other areas. 
Also, as the installation began right before the Battle of Britain, there would be other delays and shortcomings. As the number of pilots who suffered from severe burns increased, shortcuts were made in installing the safer tanks. For example, in the hurricanes, only the wing tanks were removed and fitted with the self-sealing tanks, whereas the reserve tank in the fuselage was considered too hard to get to, so remained as it was. But in an attempt to compensate, an armor piece was fitted in between the reserve tank and the cockpit. Despite these improvements, the majority of burned pilots flew hurricanes, and that's taking into consideration the ratio of hawkers to Spitfires made and used during that summer and autumn of 1940. Now, before we pick up where we left off and then get to Dr. Archibald McIndoe, East Grinstead, and the people that would make up the guinea pig club, I would like to take a moment to describe the process and evolution of what made East Grinstead's success possible. The treatment of wound shock. Literally, the ability of medical staff to positively deal with the body's reaction to shock or severe wounds. The treatment of such disruptions to the body improved incrementally during the 1930s, but not in any noticeable way. Instead, changes came daily in emergency rooms and hospitals, totally unconnected with war or the military. Before 1939, most burn victims would die almost immediately. But by the outbreak of war, these individual steps, the clinical understanding of how to combat wound shock, was put together, and thus, the vast majority of pilots and bomber crews that would have died did not. But of course, that was only the beginning of treatment and a new way of life for the boys and young men who did their duty for king and country. The shock a burned body suffers is one of the most powerful. The damaged part of the body loses tremendous amounts of liquids vital to life. But then a second shock attacks the body as various organs going into a defensive mode shift liquids around to compensate. And only gradually was this understood. Of course, as the burn site cannot be repaired, the liquids sent there are lost. Within a very short time, the organs attempting to help, like kidneys, liver, and finally the brain, soon fail due to their own dehydration and lack of proteins. And normally, within 24 hours, the person would die due to the loss of fluid. Those that lived longer normally still died within a few days, and even if they lived longer still, infection would normally find its way into the body, and the result would be the same. As late as 1937, people who suffered serious burns were normally given a small amount of saline, a larger dose of morphine, and sent home to die with loved ones. Using one more example to make the point, at this same time, if a person suffered burns more than 30% of their body, they were not admitted into a teaching hospital, as nothing could be done to help, and those poor souls posed a danger of infection to other patients. But during the 1930s, more and more saline was used on burn victims, but it still wasn't enough. Sadly, the result was that the patient would live a little longer, in pain, before dying. But the important step of transfusion therapy was established. And this new therapy was experimented with 
Medical staff began to try a combination of plasma, a universally compatible liquid medium that transfers blood and proteins through the body, and saline. Saline was for the loss of liquids and plasma for the loss of proteins. But unlike before, the amounts of both were not held back for fear of side effects or for fear of killing the patient. With burn victims, there was literally nothing to lose. Doses of both were now given daily with the amounts and the effects closely monitored. By the time Poland is invaded, doctors and nurses have worked out a reliable system of calculations that answered the needs of the patient based on the size and depth of the wound. In 1938, as Britain readied for war, the only four fully trained plastic surgeons in Britain were assigned as civilian consultancies in differing military services. In overall charge was Harold Gillis, who had learned his craft in the Great War. Soon after that conflict was over, he had a thriving practice and, in 1930, brought in his cousin, Archibald McIndoe. Young he may have been, but McIndoe's abilities all but promised him a partnership soon after joining Gillies' practice. Gillies went to Park Hewitt Hospital in Basingstoke and McIndoe to East Grinstead and the RAF. Again, there's nothing that indicates anything but chance was involved in selecting McIndoe to assist burned pilots and any civilians burned by German bombers. And that you can call what you will. And just like the other three surgeons, McIndoe went to his new post before the war, set up his team of nurses and anesthesiologists in Ward 3, and waited. As busy as McIndoe would be in the future, his busiest day will consist of 30 back-to-back -back operations, his tour began slowly. His first patient was William Cruikshank, who came in December of 1939, shot down by friendly fire. Cruikshank suffered from burns on his legs and back, but as McIndoe was able to deal with this right after the accident, Cruikshank's treatment and grafting was a relatively smooth process compared to what was coming. His first real challenge came in March of 1940. Godfrey Edmonds, who crashed in his training aircraft, suffered from crash injuries and significant burns. McIndoe was quickly notified and inspected Edmonds at Halton, but soon had him moved to East Grinstead. The pilot's entire face had been burned away and needed to be rebuilt. Edmonds would be the first Grinstead patient to need more than 20 operations to rebuild his face. But it was only after the first few procedures that other patients started coming in from Dunkirk. As strange as this may sound, fortunately for McIndoe and his staff, the majority of these cases were the results of shrapnel or bullet wounds, and so fairly straightforward to deal with, despite their numbers. It was Edmonds that gave McIndoe pause. When he first looked down on him, the surgeon realized that, among other things, he would have to rebuild the man's eyelids. That was when the entire inadequate system of treating burn victims from start to finish came to him. And what he and his staff learned in treating Edmonds would go a long way in creating a fresh approach. It should be noted that Edmonds would eventually return to flying and later trained paratroops. For McIndoe, there were no similar cases to read about in Britain 
or in America. There was no precedent for burns of this kind. There was no textbooks or someone he could ask. But, according to McIndoe, he wasn't alone. A few years later, when he was asked about his ability in surgery, he replied, quote, When I looked at a burned boy for the first time and saw I must replace his eyelids, God came down my right arm. Unquote. As McIndoe knew all too well, during the 1920s and 30s, there was no developed treatment for dealing with major burns. First of all, the patients didn't survive. But also, what treatment actions were developed were for smaller burns, not the major ones he was seeing now. The best example of this was the one previous method developed for treating burns, no matter the size or depth of the burn, coagulation. And because of this particular development and the way it was used before any operation was performed, surgeons were never consulted. Coagulation was a chemical compound spread over the burned area. It would soon harden and, in effect, cover the burned area with a scab-like surface. The wound was now sealed and mostly protected from infections. And when whatever fresh skin was going to grow was detected, the scab could be taken off. Simple, direct, and it worked great for small burns. The coagulant was developed by E.C. Davidson of the Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit. The basis of the coagulant was a tannic acid compound. Tannic acid was first used in leather works to stiffen or tan hides. Unfortunately, the substance was refined over time. Silver nitrate was later added to help the coagulum dry more quickly. And to all those who used it, this sounded like another improvement. Then a more delicate version was created to apply to sensitive areas, like near the eyes. Again, so far so good. Anyone with even the smallest amount of medical training could apply it to the body. For application purposes, tannic acid reached its peak in 1937, when it was refined enough to put into a jelly, and then into a metal tube. At this point, it was roughly the same thing as putting suntan lotion on a child at the beach. It wasn't long before Tanifex jelly, its commercial name, could be found in almost every hospital, ambulance, and doctor's office, and this included every RAF station's sick quarters. But there were two issues not considered before the war, and really, it's hard to place blame for the unprecedented or the unpredicted. First, the tannic acid had been altered over time. The attempt was to improve its ability to completely cover a wound with a scab-like surface. The other was the sheer size and depth of burns that would soon be flooding Ward 3. And these two factors combined, with a lack of long-term treatment for burn victims, would prove disastrous for some pilots. That is, until McIndoe trusted his eyes and he saw what the coagulum did to his earlier patients. Unfortunately, some did not see what they did not want to see and continued to use the jelly on large-scale burns. McIndoe would fight them as well as trying to save the men who laid on his surgical table. His success against those who would not embrace change, combined with his success for his patients, went a long way in establishing him as the leading physician dealing with large-scale burns. This was the beginning of the boss, or the maestro, as McIndoe would soon be called. 
Ferry battle pilot William Simpson would be one of the first, and mercifully, one of the last to lose most functionality of his hands due to coagulation treatment after his hands were severely burned. As one of the many casualties of the Battle of France, Simpson, unfortunately, was not evacuated before France fell, so did not make it to East Grinstead. Instead, he was trapped as the Germans came to control the area he was in. So, Simpson spent almost a year in a French civilian hospital before he was allowed to leave and make for Britain. Now, not knowing anything else, the French doctors used the tannic acid all over his hands and between his fingers. And, as can be imagined, the scabbing process set in immediately. First, his circulation, already hampered by the burns, was slowed all the more. And, now that his hands were encased, the naturally and necessary swelling process could not happen. As this was a large-scale burn, the scabbing would be removed, antiseptic would be applied, and the tannic acid reapplied. This, more times than not, would lead to infection. Now, we're going to skip right over the obvious, incredible pain this must have caused Simpson to have this attached surface removed from his burned flesh. Clinically speaking, the restricted hands would then suffer from necrosis, or tissue destruction, what we would call gangrene. Literally, portions of his fingers were lost and had to be surgically removed. The remainder of his hand hardened into a claw-like appendage. Of course, without the ability to move or control the vast majority of what was left of his hand. And even if the damage done to the hand did not end up so severe, from a surgeon's point of view, the ability to graft skin was forever lost. Now, imagine this entire process when someone's face was burnt and tannic acid was used around the eyes. Yes, it did happen to patients before McIndoe and other colleagues could convince enough physicians not to use the jelly on large-scale burns. Fortunately, relatively few patients had their eyes physically damaged by this process. Many physicians were willing to acquiesce to East Grinstead, but some fought against this advice to the detriment of their patients' health. The obvious next question was, so what do we do with large-scale burns before, during, and after surgery? McIndoe and his staff were already trying to figure that out. As burned fighter pilots started coming into East Grinstead, McIndoe noticed that their injuries were similar, guessing that the main cause was the location of the fuel tank placed in front of them. Before too long, these burns to the face and hands had its own name, Airman's Burn. As the burned victims were similar, so too was their pathology, or the study of the damage. This allowed the staff at East Grinstead to focus and quickly specialize in their task. Unfortunately, Airman's Burn was one of the worst as the damage was done to all the skin tissue, sebaceous glands, hair follicles, sweat glands, and nerve endings. At first, their patients would be less concerned than the doctors because the deeper the burn, the more damage was done to their nerve endings, and so less severe the pain at first. And McIndoe and his staff were quickly able to organize the airman's burn into four categories, 
Um, phase one normally had to do with both hands and the wrists, mostly the back of the hands and the wrists. It depends if they were wearing gloves. Uh, the second one was the face is damaged, but the specifics depends on if they were wearing goggles or do they have their goggles up over their eyes to protect their forehead, or maybe they had their um, oxygen mask on, which would protect their, their mouth. But uh, again, their, their cheeks and their ears would be damaged. Um, number three, the throat area from the chin to the top of the chest and the sides of the necks would see a lot of burns. And the last one, the inner and outer thighs. So depending on the severity, they could have a combination of these. In essence, being in an airplane that was on fire was like sticking a person in a furnace for a few seconds. How quickly the pilot got out or got the fire out would dictate the severity of his burns. And although we've already covered the Battle of Britain, I think it's worth noting that in 1939, 41 RAF aircrew were burned severely enough to be taken out of action. During 1940, at least 378 more men were added to that list. So, it's safe to say that at the very least, 400 pilots, most of the victims were from fighter command, were unable to assist in the great attrition air battles of August and September of 1940. By then, Downing's greatest challenge wasn't a shortage of planes, but trained pilots. When one considers that the burned victims took longer, if ever, to recover and rejoin the battle, combined with the free hunts of the Messerschmitt pilots like Adolf Gallant, the pressure on Park, Downing, their support staff, and their pilots comes to deserve even more respect. So we're almost done here. Um, next time we'll just jump right into as the patients start um, showing up in the different surgeries that they need and why they're there and then they how to form the guinea pig club. But, but before I let you go, I wanted to read one little passage um, from uh, Jeffrey Page who ends up becoming the secretary of the guinea pig club. And just to show how lighthearted they were, he was picked because he could barely write. The treasurer, the treasurer who I can't remember his name right now, was picked because he didn't have any legs and he couldn't run away from the, with the funds. So when they started this club, it truly was just a drinking club. But I've, as we all know, it became so much more than that. It became a group of uh, love and support, and they helped each other um, for decades and for many years after the war. But here's how Jeffrey Page ended up uh, in the guinea pig club. So Page's fighter was hit by bullets from a Dornier, um, and this is from one of his memoirs. Um, Surprise quickly changed to fear as the instinct for self-preservation began to take over. The gas tank behind the engine blew up, and my cockpit became an inferno. Fear became blind terror, and then agonized horror, as the bare skin on my hands, gripping the throttle and control column, shriveled up like burnt parchment under the intensity of the blast furnace temperature. Screaming at the top of my voice, I threw my head back to keep it away from the searing flames. Instinctively, the tortured right hand groped for the release pin, securing the restraining Sutton safety harness. Um, and then he finally gets out of his plane, um, and as he's floating down, it was then that I noticed the smell, the odor of my burnt flesh, was so lonesome that I wanted to vomit. But there was too much to attend to. The coastline at Margate was just discernible six to ten miles away. Ten thousand feet below me lay the deserted sea. I began to laugh. The force of the exploding gas tank had blown away every vestige of clothing of, off my thighs downwards, including one shoe. 
and he's fun, and then he hits the water. Um, the battle with the metal disc, the the parachute harness release mechanism, had to be won, or else the water-clogged parachute would drag me down to a watery grave. Sputtering with mouthfuls of salt water, I struggled grimly. Pieces of flesh flaked off, and blood poured from the raw tissues. Eventually, he got himself free from the parachute. But as he was fumbling for his hip flask, uh, he lost it in, with his hands, uh, and it sank below the waves. Um, and he was eventually picked up by a British merchant ship. And then he talks about the pain. Um, Acute misery passed by as the salt dried about my face injuries, and the contracting strap of the flying helmet cut into the raw surface of my chin. Buckle and leather had welded into one solid mass, preventing removal of the headgear. And then he gets to the um, hospital at Halton, and they're about to give him a shot, and he doesn't want to see the needle go into his arm, so he looks away. And then he catches the sight of himself in a reflecting mirror, and then he faints, passes out, and he doesn't have to worry about the needle anymore. So I'll try to find different passages um, as we go along from different uh, different pilots and how they ended up there. But I'll keep it pretty clean, because honestly, I don't have a stomach for this kind of stuff. And these um, pilots who went through this, not that they had a choice, and the doctors and the nurses, but even the pilots end up watching surgeries of their friends to uh, kind of help lose that fear. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll just give you different stories as I can, but I won't get too gruesome because, one, I never know who's listening, and, two, um, I'm just not as strong as an RAF pilot. So I will see you as soon as I can with the next episode. Thank you for your patience. I'm sorry I lost my voice for two weeks. I had the flu, but I'm back now, and I'll get out the next episode as soon as I can. Thank you for your patience, everyone.